Over the last couple of weeks, uh, we have been looking at a teaching series that we called Small Town Jesus, where uh, we were looking at what it means to live as good locals in this town, how we can bless the people of this town. Um, and if you haven't had a chance, to, if you weren't here the last couple of weeks, I'd encourage you to catch up online, because I believe a key message, key series, key idea for us as a church at this stage is learning to love the town that we live in. Well, today we begin a new teaching series, and I've just realized I left my Bible at home. <laughs> That's not funny, is it? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I'm going to read from it. I'm like, no, I'm not. I don't know where it is. Um, I think it'll be on the screen. I'll um, find. Um, today we begin a new teaching series where we're, um, we're going to be looking at Paul's letter to, to the Galatians. And um, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you should know the Bible is split into two big chunks, the Old Testament and New Testament. The New Testament has four books about the life and activity of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then there's a book called Acts, which is about what the first Christians did in establishing churches and reaching their region. And then after that, there's a series of letters written by a lot of the church leaders or apostles to the churches to encourage and strengthen them. And, and one of those letters is the letter to the Galatians. Um, Paul's letter to the Galatians, which is, we've called the series Grace Works, which um, will become clear as we go through this morning's message. But today what I want to do is um, just give us a, an overview of some of the big ideas of the, the letter, why it's important for us, and then hopefully just show us what the heart of the gospel is all about. So we're going to read from the chapter 1 for the first four verses. And um, if you have your Bibles, do you want to turn them on? Um, or, you know, look at the screen, those of you who haven't brought your Bibles. Shame on you. Right, I'll do the same. I'll read from the screen as well so you don't feel bad for not having a physical book in front of you. Here we go. This is what Paul says. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And just in those four, first four verses, we learn who the, who's writing the letter, we learn who the recipients are, and Paul also gives us just some key bits of information as to the, the heartbeat of the Christian message. But before we look at them, I want to start just by making two observations and asking a question. The first observation is this. Uh, almost all the world's religious groups today look culturally and socially similar. So if you were to look at people meeting in a mosque in Brighton, listen to the, listen to the way they pray, look at their appearance and their dress, uh, watch how they worship, it would be very similar to how people uh, meeting in a mosque in Kanu, Nigeria, or Jakarta, or Istanbul are worshipping. Similarly, if you were to go to a Hindu wedding in Honslow, and then go to one in uh, Hyderabad in India, they'd be very similar to one another. Buddhists and Baha'is and Confucians and Jews look pretty similar the world over. It's true that for almost every religious group on the planet, they look culturally and socially similar to one another, except for one, Christianity. Christianity looks very different across the planet. 
In fact, in the way that they worship, and the way that they sing and engage with God, the way that they dress, Christians look very different. You can't compare Nigerian Anglicans or Brazilian Pentecostals, Coptic believers, Chinese house church Christians, Russian Orthodox Christians, um, Roman Catholics, Dutch Reformed, and people like us in a school hall in Seaford look very different from one another the world over. It's the first observation. The second observation is that uh, almost every religion has remained based in the region of its origin. So Islam has always been strongest and most dominant in the Middle East and North Africa. Hinduism came from India and largely still does. Buddhism is always centered in China. New religious movements, uh, things like Christian science or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, um, have remained based largely in their center of money or influence, in, in those cases in North America. It's true that for almost every religious group across the planet, they've remained based in their region of origin except for one, Christianity. Christianity's original center was Jerusalem, where the first Christians came from. And then its center was Antioch, later um, Istanbul, or modern-day Istanbul, and later Rome, and later northern Europe, and then recently North America, where the majority of Christian influence, majority of Christians living have come from. These days, Christianity is growing fastest and has the most adherence in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. Its power base or major base has shifted. So it's true. That almost every religious group on the planet looks culturally and socially similar to itself and that almost every religion has remained based in its region of origin, except for Christianity. There's the observations. The question is, why is that the case? And the answer to Exaggerate, but only a little bit. The answer is Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatians explains why that's true. And for us to understand, let's, let's back up a few years and look at the story so far getting into Galatians. So, in around AD 26, uh, a Jewish prophet named Johanan ben Zacharias begins a renewal movement calling people to repent, goes out to the wilderness, calls people to join him in preparation for the kingdom, the empire of Yahweh, Israel's God, to come. Shortly after this, Yeshua ben Yosef uh, goes out to visit him, gets baptized, his cousin, and begins a campaign of preaching and teaching and demonstrating the activity, proclaiming the message that the empire of Israel's God is here. Yosef, uh, Yeshua ben Yosef, we know him as Jesus of Nazareth, he was wildly popular with the crowds, but also opposed. And on the 7th of April, on Friday the 7th of April, AD 30, he was arrested, tried, and killed by the Romans um, with, on the charge of inciting rebellion. Then, on Sunday the 9th of April, his tomb is found empty, despite the fact that it was guarded. And shortly afterwards, his followers begin saying that they've seen him alive and well, back from the dead. Seven weeks later, 120 of his followers spill out onto the streets of Jerusalem, saying that not only is he alive, but that he's also king of the entire world. He's in charge. This sectarian Jewish movement gathers momentum and influence, and as a result, uh, is met by growing opposition. Among the opponents of this Jesus movement is a man named, a, Phar a young Pharisee named Shaul, Shaul or Saul of Tarsus, 
who opposes the movement. He then has an eyewitness encounter with Jesus and becomes a Christian in AD 34. Thirteen years later, Saul is known by his Roman name, Paulos or Paul, and then he and a colleague, Barnabas, go on a missionary journey across what is now southern Turkey. And we have a map. There it is. And while there, Paul and Barnabas plant churches. Then, a year or so later, he writes what is uh, the, the angriest letter in the New Testament and what is probably one of the angriest pieces of writing in a religious text. Uh, here's a, a few quotes from the letter to the Galatians. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you. He says, oh, foolish Galatians or morons or you stupid ones, who's bewitched you? And he also says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves, which is not the kind of thing you'd expect to read in the Bible, but at least if you're not familiar with it. So what happened is the question. What's the problem? What's up with Paul? (laughs) Why did he write such a strong letter? Well, two things had happened. After he left, uh, under the influence of some Jewish teachers, um, the churches were taught differently, and Paul was extremely annoyed about the things that had been said and the things that had been done in the name of Christianity. The first thing that happened is in the region of Antioch, Jewish people had stopped eating with Gentile people. Um, So in in the ancient world, in the Bible's world, you're either a Jew or a Gentile. A Gentile means non-Jew. So for us in the room, I guess all of us, I presume, um, although my wife has a little bit of um, non-Gentile in her, um, in that her dad's Jewish, um, but for the rest of us, we're Gentiles, full card-carrying Gentiles. But what had happened is in Antioch, the Jewish people had stopped eating with the Gentile people. That's the first thing. The second thing that had happened is that in Galatia, Gentiles had started getting circumcised um, in order, like the Jews do, in order to become full members of the church and full members of the Christian faith. And Paul is furious when he hears that those two things are going on. And to us, that might sound a little bit trivial. Like, okay, they, they kind of, if you want to get circumcised, who am I to judge? It's not for me. Um, but if you want to do that, or if you want to eat with just, you know, your own type and not mix, why, why would you get so angry about that? So in order for us to understand, let's imagine a scenario. Imagine you're, you're living in apartheid South Africa. There's a strict separation between blacks and whites. But you have a vision for a community center that brings blacks and whites together. And so you build a community center and you get to know the local um, community influencers and leaders and bring them together. They start eating together. They start you know, hanging out in this community center, using it. It's on the edge of one of the townships, perhaps. And your vision is that this community that's separated would come together. And you start to see it happen. This initial success. You think this is going well. And then you get called away on business, perhaps to another part of the region, only to later hear that after you'd gone, some government officials had come along and and said that what you'd put in place was good, but it just needed a few modifications because it's not proper that uh, there should be such um, mixing between the races. And so they maybe build a partition between in the community centre and insist on people using different toilets if they're of different colour. 
And they say, well, you started well, but actually, in order to fit better with our society, in order to make more sense of what people really believe and where they're at, we think that this community group should look more like this. Imagine that you hear that. You would understandably be furious because they, in making those changes, have worked against your entire vision for the thing in the first place. You see, the whole point of Paul's message, the whole point of the Christian gospel that Paul preaches is that Jesus died and is king of the whole world, not just Jews. That Jesus died for everybody, not just religious people or the in crowd. And that also it's in Jesus that all people can be rescued and forgiven and have their shame removed and receive a new identity. Again, not just Jews. So... The separation of Jews and Gentiles at meal tables, which in Eastern cultures still to this day is a huge sign of inclusion and acceptance. But the separation of Jews and Gentiles at the meal table is similar to black and white children being forced to drink from different water fountains. It's abhorrent and it's completely against the message of um, oneness and unity. And an insistence that Gentiles have to get circumcised in order to fully participate, effectively becoming Jewish, is an appalling, Paul says, an appalling denial of the gospel. See, the whole point of this letter is that grace works. Grace is what we need. The message of God's unconditional love for the world is what's needed For us to both be healed and be reconciled. Healed of our brokenness and reconciled across our tribal, racial, socioeconomic, class backgrounds. It's the gospel that's needed. Grace works in creating those kinds of communities. And to add anything else to grace, when I say grace, uh, the word in the Bible is used to mean the undeserved kindness of God. People say grace at dinner time. It's a way of saying thank you. But grace means the undeserved kindness of God. It isn't Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus eating with the right people. Jesus plus the right behaviors. Jesus plus, I don't know, street preaching or handing out tracts. Or Jesus plus being kind to your neighbor. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus plus nothing. Nothing at all. That God's grace, his kindness to us, is enough. It's enough for our rescue. It's enough to deliver us from death. And it's enough for church membership and inclusion as well. Now, people, people often visit us as a church, and people who've you know, been part of us on Sundays in our groups have often, I think to our credit, gone home saying that this is a very welcoming community, which is good. When you hear things like that, I think it's good. But we're a welcoming community, not just because we've happened to find some of the friendliest people in the area and said, hey, can you be part of our club? We kind of really want to make a friendly community. Um, No, we're a welcoming community because I believe we've understood something of the grace of God. See, whether you're, I don't know, whether you're gay or lesbian or bisexual, however you vote, if if you're voted for the Tories or for UKIP or Labour or... Clyde Cymru or Lib Dem, however you vote, however you, um, I don't know whether you're married or single or divorced, whether you've had an affair, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're black or white or working class, middle class, whether you're posh or not posh, um, the gospel is about unconditional acceptance and welcome from God. 
And if we're welcoming as a church, I hope it's because we've understood that that's what the gospel's about. It's about God's offer of unconditional love, unconditional acceptance. Now, once we become Christians, sure, we change. Like, I change in my allegiances and practices and things that I do. I, I might stop doing certain things. I might start trying to do other things. But I do all of those things in order because I want to grow and become more and more like Jesus, the perfect human who trusted God perfectly. I want to become more like him. But I change from a position of complete and utter acceptance and welcome. I don't have to behave because I need to earn or impress God in any way. And that's the message of Galatians. The message of Galatians is that all are welcome and all are loved and all are accepted because of Christ. You know, this isn't just some kind of convenient um, political message that happens to work well in a society that values tolerance and political correctness. I mean, it sounds very convenient. Isn't it useful that the Bible says the same thing that our society says that, you know, Political correctness rules or, you know, loving and accepting one of the good. Now, if our society believes that, very well. They, they got it from the gospel originally, but we won't go there. Um, but the gospel is about a message of transformation because of God's offer of welcome, God's offer of acceptance. Let me tell you a story about a lady called Rosaria Butterfield. She's a university professor and academic. And she was... Um, University academic, lesbian, feminist, liberal, lefty. And this is what she says in her testimony. She says, The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who called themselves Christians commanded my pity and my anger. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God Jesus, who in paintings looked about as powerful as a shampoo commercial model. As a professor of English and women's studies, on the track to becoming a tenured radical, I cared about morality, justice, and compassion, fervent for the worldviews of Freud and Marx and Darwin. After my book had been published, I used my post to advance the understandable allegiances of a leftist lesbian professor. My life was happy, meaningful, and full. She wrote lots of articles against Christianity and against Christians. She was an ardent opponent of Christian faith. And she received a lot of letters back from Christians who were angry at her and people who disagreed with her. But one particular letter that she received um, stood out to hers. It was a letter from a man named Ken Smith. She says it was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken encouraged me to explore the kind of questions that I, as a university professor, admired. He didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond to this letter, so I threw it away. Later that night, I fished it out of the recycling bin and put it on my desk where I stared at it for about a week. It confronted me with the worldview divide that demanded a response. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They didn't act as if such conversations were polluting them. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. I started reading my Bible, or the Bible. 
I read the way a glutton devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple different translations. Who hasn't? Um, At a dinner gathering my partner and I were hosting, my transgendered friend Jay cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine. This Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria, she warned. With tremors, I whispered, Jay, what if it's true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we're all in trouble? Then, one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there, Floyd was there, the church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I didn't want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a peaceful love song in the rubble and ruins of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make my world right. I drank nervously and tentatively at first and then passionately of the peace and comfort of the Holy Spirit, and I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of a covenant family where one person calls me a wife and many call me a mother. Rosaria Butterfield is now a a writer and apologist and defender of the Christian faith because she encountered the grace and the acceptance of Christians who embodied the grace and acceptance of the Christian message, which is put forward in the book of Galatians. Famous story about the the Narnia writer C.S. Lewis who walked in on a meeting of academic minds at the university and asked them what they were discussing and they were all disagreeing with one another and they said, we're trying to work out what it is that makes Christianity unique from other world religions. And he said, that's easy. It's grace. God's kindness and offer of forgiveness to us. The undeserved, unmerited offer of salvation. The Bible's message is that there is nothing of any spiritual value and worth in you and me. That we're born separated from God, alienated from him, dead in our sin, desperately sinful, desperately selfish, and as our culture likes to remind us, without an identity and without much of a hope or meaning in this world. But the message of grace comes and says to you, undeserving, lost, meaningless people, God has offered you identity. He's offered you forgiveness. He's offered you a new life in trusting him. And what do I have to do to offer, receive it? Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus for your forgiveness of sins. That's it? Do I need to, I don't know, pray five times a day and walk around in circles three times a day and face east or west or north or south? Do I need to go to church or do I need to work in this profession or do I need to become a nice person? No. Jesus takes hold of us as we are. God meets us where we are, not where we should be, and says, right, given that you're here, let's journey together. That's the message of the gospel. So you can understand why Paul was so angry when the members of this church were starting to insist upon other activities and they were starting to separate themselves at mealtimes. And the solution to the problem that we have. Actually, Paul mentions it in those opening verses that we read. Let's, Let's put them back up and read them again. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Grace and peace to you from God. We were born hostile to God. Inwardly there's a 
a belief, an emotional response to the idea of God from birth that makes us want to run away. We don't like the idea of accountability. I have to answer to someone for my life. No, thank you. And we come up with all kinds of clever intellectual explanations as to why there can't be a God. We don't frame it like that. But I don't know if you've noticed this. Um, If I was to ask you your opinion on any controversial, personal, or ethical issue, you would be able to give me your answer in a flash. And then you would be able to give me some very thought-through, reasoned answers as to why you gave that answer. In fact, often... The more educated you are, the just the better you are at blagging it when it comes to giving me good explanations. And actually, when I talk to some of my friends who haven't been to university, they're often the more, the more honest people because they give answers like, I don't know why I think it, but I know I do. You're like, good, okay, I respect you. <laughs> but if I was to ask you what you think about an ethical issue, you would be able to tell me straight away. And what you're doing in telling me straight away is telling me your emotional gut reaction to something. And then afterwards, coming up with intellectual reasons as to why you think that. It's the same with belief in God, actually. You're born hostile to God, the Bible says. And so from birth, if I was to say to you, um, maybe not from birth, wait for a few years older so you can understand English. And uh, I say to you, right, God says you must live like this. No. Why? Uh, Because here's 10 reasons why I shouldn't. But I know the answer is no. God says the answer is no. The Bible says, the answer is I don't care. (laughs) Or at least I wish I didn't care. There's an emotional gut level reaction to God. Why? Because we're born hostile to God, enemies of God. I mean, we live in a very polite society. It's very respectable. Um, But actually, all society is 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 mutual self-deceit, as we've heard recently. It's mutual self-deceit. We wear masks. We put our best selves forward. It's only when the chips are down, when we're stripped of our creature comforts, when someone threatens to, I don't know, impose upon our comfort and our sense of peace that we get angry. It's me and my rights and I deserve and give me justice, give me this and that and that. But generally we have this veneer of politeness. But the Bible says underneath that veneer there's a heart that's opposed to God, spiritually dead. And Paul's opening statements in Galatians is grace and peace. To you from God. This isn't peace of mind and harmony and come sit in the meadows with me, Paul, and let's just contemplate life. Let's retreat to the hills and build monasteries for ourselves and smell the flowers in peaceful contentment. This is peace to those that are at war with God. Those whose entire worldviews and ways of thinking and living are constructed because of an emotional reaction to the idea of submission to God. We're rebels. And God says to us, peace. I've made peace with you. I offer you peace. This isn't a white flag of submission. This is a white dove of peace. Like This is for you. Enemies, rebels though you are. Oh, what did I do to deserve this peace? I must have been very clever in order to earn peace. I've worn God down. And now he's having to offer me terms of a treaty. I rejected God. No, this is God saying, peace. I love you enough. I care about you enough to say peace. And along with that peace comes the offer of rescue from this evil age, Paul says. So hostility can be ended and there can be rescue from this present evil age, Paul says. Which again, isn't a, come on, retreat, run away like Monty Python. Run away from the world and its troubles and hide in a bunker. 
Oh, I deliver you from the trappings of this evil age that is hell-bent on its own destruction because we worship self, we worship the creation, we're opposed to God, we are encased. The Bible says blinded by the God of this age. And the gospel comes to say, I'm bringing you rescue. Rescue's here. It looks like being rescued and added to the people of God. It looks like peace, it looks like freedom, and it looks like this message of hope that change is possible. Not because of you and your brilliance, but because of him. We're going to end this morning by breaking bread together. We're going to end by coming to the Lord's table, and John's off, and by receiving this bread as... So when Jesus died, before he died, he had dinner with his friends and he took some bread and to a people who are at war with God. He said, this bread is the bread of peace and the new covenant between God and us. This bread represents my body, which is broken for you. It's the means of peace. This blood, this, this wine, he said, represents my blood, which will be poured out for you for your, the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus' cross is God's offer of peace to a world at war with God. And so when we come to the table and we break bread and we drink juice, we do so as an act of remembrance and of gratitude for what God's done. Believing that in somehow this is a physical means of us engaging with, a tangible means of us engaging with the reality of the gospel of God, the good news of Jesus. And this is something for Christians to do. If you're not a Christian... You can sit this one out. You can sing the song that we're going to be singing. You can consider some of the things that I've been saying today. You can become a Christian. You can become a Christian today by talking to the person you came with or someone you know in the church, by confessing to them, or to God, your sin and asking Jesus to forgive you. And you could break bread for the first time as a Christian. But let's pray together. And as John and the band join us, We'll break bread and remember what Jesus has done. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for this message of Galatians that is what makes Christianity different. Your forgiveness, your life, peace between men and God, peace between man and man, possible, unity, possible, the ending of hostilities between different people, the ending of tribal lines, possible, because of the grace of God. Thank you for your kindness. And we gather to the table to break the bread and drink the juice as an act of celebrating and remembering your offer of peace to a world at war. In Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. Amen.